Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. everybody and welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. Today we are speaking with Rose Horton, Executive Director of Women and Infant at Emory Decatur Hospital about burnout and compassion. Before we start our interview, we want to thank all of you for listening and let you know that you can earn CEs and get key takeaways, resources, and transcripts by visiting our website, womancenteredhealth.com. Also, Stephanie and I put this podcast together in our free time and often use our personal funds, so please consider supporting us. You can support us by subscribing and giving us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you are listening. And if you are able to offer a financial donation, please visit our website and click the Support Us tab. All right, let's meet our guest. Hi again, Rose. Thank you so much for being on our podcast again. So first, for the listeners who didn't hear the first episode you were on, could you provide a little bit of details about your background? Of course, I'd be happy to. Hi, Stephanie. Hi, Nicole. My name is Rose Horton. And as mentioned, I am a nurse by education, training, and passion. I love the our profession and have always worked with the birthing community and currently I'm working as the executive director of Women and Infant Services at Emory Decatur Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia, where I have oversight of labor and delivery, mother, baby, the neonatal intensive care unit, lactation, and education of the education. Thank you. And just for our listeners, Rose and Catherine Hill of AWAN were on our November episode, November 22, number 64. And they talked about the Respectful Maternity Care Toolkit. So if you are a clinician who is caring for people who are pregnant, please check that out. It is super helpful with a lot of tips and strategies on how to best communicate with patients, which is what we're all about. But today, like Nicole said, Rose is going to talk about burnout. So in our last episode, we asked you what informed your perspective. So this time, could you answer that, but kind of keeping it into the compassion, fatigue and burnout framework? So what informed your perspective there? And in other words, why do you do what you do? And what is most valuable to you? Yeah, so I am... I believe a naturally resilient person. My cup is always half full and overflowing. And during the pandemic, though, I realized that I was not my best self. Even though I was doing a lot of sessions on resiliency for the rest of the organization, I wasn't my best self. And as I was approached to do a keynote for an organization, I said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to put my experience during the pandemic into this presentation. I'm going to talk about me. I'm going to be the center of it. So um, that's exactly what I did. And it has been therapeutic. It has been healing. It has been transformative. And the feedback that I got from the session that I did was really, really, really great. It was lots of tears and lots of laughter, which I think is incredibly therapeutic as we navigate what we're hoping is the worst or the last of the surges of the pandemic. So this is really about me as a nurse, as a nurse leader, and how I was able to navigate through this terrible pandemic. Well, I think we have a lot of listeners looking forward to this discussion, myself included. So like we said, today we're going to talk about burnout and compassion. So let's jump right in. I think that burnout is certainly something that most folks can describe or identify with, but how do you see burnout most commonly manifesting or what are some signs and symptoms of burnout? I think that burnout shows up differently in different people. I think it's it could be personal. What I see a lot and what I'll speak to is just a lot of stress, anxiety, depression is another really great one. Weight loss, if you're lucky. 
weight gain if you're not as lucky. <laughs> a lack of interest in doing the things that used to make you happy and make you joyful. Apathy, just a lack of any emotional energy about anything. Joyless. I think that's how it shows up in a lot of people that I've seen. And I had a lot of the same symptoms myself during the, during the pandemic. So, Rose, I know you have some numbers kind of in your back pocket. What is burnout looking like in the healthcare workforce community? And I think that's a really great question because I remember doing a presentation in in, uh, 2019 and talking about burnout. And the data that I got from an article in 2019, it said a third to a half of all nurses and doctors in the U.S. suffer from burnout. And that's in 2019. So when I did the presentation, I'm like, y'all, this is 2019. So can you imagine what 2020 is like? And we do have really good data about 2020. Some of the most worrisome data, I think, as we consider burnout is that from some data in 2020, that 40% of healthcare workers are thinking about leaving the profession because of the pandemic. And that's, that's really, really worrisome because we have a workforce that's already struggling, right? We're, we already don't have enough staff and the thought of losing that much of the staff is, is frightening. From a leadership perspective, it really impacts us in, in many ways as well. The demand for travel nurses has really skyrocketed and our ability to find travel nurses within a reasonable amount of time it's non-existent. It used to be that you can find a, a traveler within like two months, but now you have to plan so far and ahead. And the financial impact to healthcare organizations, the estimate is that $14 billion is being spent on contract workers or travel nurses. And I think the final thing that I'm going to speak to is is turnover, especially first-year turnover. That's the one that I pay a lot of attention to because you know, you invest so much into the recruitment and the hiring and the onboarding process. And to have somebody leave in six months, eight months, 12 months, it's really devastating, not just financially, because the cost of replacing a nurse is about $80,000, but it's it's devastating and demoralizing to the team as well because of the emotional energy that you put into establishing that relationship and trying to create that teamness and that sense of belonging with that new hire. So it's a, it's a vicious cycle that's really, really hard for us to wrap our arms around right now. So it sounds like the pandemic has caused a lot of burnout or is associated with a lot of burnout. But what else contributes to burnout, especially for clinicians? I do believe that the pandemic exacerbated our current situation, right? It really revealed our, the true sense of what's going on. Lots of things. Um, in one of the articles that I referenced, they talk about the workload. Workload is, it's hard. It's hard out there for nurses. You know, if you have four to five patients, that's a really heavy workload. Our patients are sicker, so there's a higher acuity for patients. And layer on top of that, Incivility. There's a lot of incivility out there as well with patients, with their families, maybe, and even incivility between healthcare workers. I, I think all of that is really contributing to, to burnout. One of the articles talked about, I think nurses are very able to articulate the purpose of our work, right? We see value in our work. We know that we're making a difference, but not having the supplies that you need and not feeling supported in your work, that's something else that can totally lead to burnout. Um, Technology, we love it when it works, but not so much when it doesn't. That was definitely a contributor as well to burnout, having technology that is not operational or not consistently operational. To decrease the burden, we know that we put technology in place because it's supposed to make things better. I mean, remember when we used to document with pen and paper? And uh, and the promise was, hey, when we have this computer documentation, it's going to be so much easier, so much clicking. But that hasn't always been the case, right? It's increased the burden for some people, especially for our providers. You know, they talk about burden related to clicks. How many clicks do I have to do? So that's something that we really need to pay attention to from an organizational perspective to ensure that we're decreasing the 
the burden for our team. So all of those things, you know, the workload and, and civility and technology, all of that are all of those are contributors to burnout. One of the things that, at least for me and my own experience, and some people may have already realized this before, but I really saw this disconnect happen with COVID where as a nurse and a scientist, people like my own friends and family did not trust what I was saying, didn't value what I was saying because of all of this COVID misinformation, disinformation. And I know that for me personally led to a lot of burnout and and confusion about expertise. And so I don't know, like, if you're hearing things like that, too, just kind of going from I feel like healthcare professionals, not for every, especially marginalized groups, which we've talked about has always trusted healthcare professionals. But I, I feel like, especially, like, I think there's always like these surveys, like nurses are the most trusted profession. And then to kind of see how that played out in the pandemic was really eye opening, at least for me. No, I absolutely agree with that. I, I think that has had an impact. And, you know, I'm on social media a lot. And I see tweets of nurses saying that as patients, especially early 2021, in the ICU, as patients are dying, they're still denying the fact that they have COVID, uh, that COVID exists, you know, as they're dying, which I could imagine is incredibly frustrating to anyone because, the goal is to limit exposure, mitigate exposure to the virus, right? So that it limits our sick patients and less people in the ED and the ICU. That That's our goal. That's all that we want as healthcare professionals. There's nothing else in it for us than to ensure that everybody is, is healthy. So it's very disheartening to know that people don't value what we're sharing as the truth based on science, based on research, based on literature. One thing that I talk about as I think about my own journey towards the pandemic, I clearly remember October of 2020, how excited and optimistic and joyful that I felt. It's like, yay, it's been eight really terrible, heinous months, but this is behind us because we, we don't have one. We have three vaccines with proven efficacy. You know, everybody's going to get the vaccine and we're going to we're going to be done with this. And again, what the pandemic really exacerbated and displayed to us was that as a nation, we're incredibly divided. And that division led to a significant amount of misinformation, led to the politicizing of the vaccines. And it led to our nation as an industrialized nation having one of the lowest vaccinated rates in all industrialized nations. So uh, as you asked that question, that's exactly where my mind went to, Stephanie, is because we are, we are divided as a nation. And we clearly saw that in early 2021. And the subsequent two to three significant surges in 2021 that resulted ultimately in over a million people in the United States dying. So that's, that was really huge. And as you consider the essential employees, that's us. That's nurses and physicians, all healthcare workers, respiratory therapists, surgical scrub techs, you name it. We're the essential employee and we were just about decimated by the pandemic. It's been really tough. Well, and another thing you brought up too, and I think this is a, definitely a conversation to have too when we start talking about tips and tricks, is, is dealing with the incivility, you know, even from clinician to clinician, but, you know, I've, I've heard in uh, quite a few nursing circles that I'm in that they're like, everyone just seems more mean. They're like, they're just more rude. And, and I don't think, you know, the people I'm talking to, like, aren't expecting you to like bow down to them and be like, oh, thank God the nurse is here, you know, <laughs> praise be. But I mean, it's just like <laughs> not even being respectful towards them. And, you know, I had one friend, she said, you know, it's really hard. She's like, I used to have, she's a diabetic educator. She's like, you know, it used to be, and there was a huge influx with diagnosis of diabetes during the pandemic. And she's like, it used to be, you might have like one kind of 
mean person in the day kind of, you know, that might ruin your day. She's like, and now I feel like it's switched and you, maybe I have one nice person. It's like they think it's my fault that they have diabetes and they're taking it out on me. And she's like, it, it's just exhausting to have like that total flip. And, and so I think if later again, kind of put a pin in this, I think giving some tips and tricks on dealing with that, I think that also might be of interest to our listeners. But in what ways do you think that folks in the healthcare system may be more susceptible to feelings of burnout? Or do you think OB-GYN clinicians are a particular, are at particularly high risk for burnout? I think that we're all impacted equally. I don't think it's unique to a service line, you know, cardiology versus ortho versus others. One thing that we did notice during the pandemic, which we definitely spoke to, is that we were not as impacted in our service line as the emergency department. We were not as impacted as the ICUs. You know, we were not as impacted as the COVID units. Um, And we recognized that and we were very, very thankful. And we did as much as we could to support those who were impacted by it. So I don't think there's a higher rate of burnout within OB. I think all of us are impacted equally. I do think by virtue of the work that we do, we're service-oriented. As nurses, we care. Caring is essentially what we do. I think that's why we're suffering at such a high rate of burnout. I was thinking earlier about the whole concept of alarm fatigue. I don't know if you remember that 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 whole concept and Drink Commission had a statement about about alarm fatigue. And we know that alarm fatigue happens because we hear the alarms all the time and it no longer has a desired effect, you know, to alarm or to alert us that that something is wrong. And I think the same thing could be said about healthcare and about nursing. You know, we we care a lot. Caring is akin to compassion. And when we care so much and we continue to pour into other people and pour and pour and pour, and then there's nothing left to give, you know, it really leads to that compassion fatigue. So I think we're more susceptible to it by virtue of the work that we we do. You know, it's, it's not automation. It's it's all about the emotions. It's all about caring. It's not just task. It's about the heart as well. So I think that's what leads to it. I saw a really great definition of compassion that I want to speak to. This definition of compassion, this article is, is dated 2017, so not super old. Compassion is a holistic understanding of a problem or the suffering of another with a commitment to act to solve the problem and or alleviate the suffering. And I love that. That's what compassion is about. And that's what we all want to do as nurses. We want to alleviate the the suffering of others. But what happens is that because we're consistently and continually, continually focusing on everyone else but ourselves, we're pretty empty. And we don't realize that we're empty. And then we're in that compassion fatigue. You know, and the definition of compassion fatigue is a condition characterized by emotional and physical exhaustion, leading to a diminished ability to empathize or to feel compassion for others. And that's the worst place I think we can be as healthcare providers when we don't have that ability to empathize and we don't have that ability to care and to be compassionate so we're not as focused on alleviating the suffering of others that that's that's all bad and we don't want to be in that place yeah so you talked a little bit i think in your response there about compassion and burnout can we can you talk more explicitly about how burnout and compassion are related to each other i think that they are closely you know, knit together when you think about that. Again, as you're thinking about what we do as nurses, you know, our job is to provide compassionate care. It's in our code of ethics, the ANA code of ethics, is that we treat everybody with compassion and with respect. So it's really woven into the fiber of everything that we do as nurses. And when you're doing that heart work and you're consistently met with barriers, 
And the barriers could be that of staffing, of inadequate resources, of incivility, of a leader that does not support you. As you layer on all those barriers, then your likelihood of having burnout because of of all of that increases, and then you, you're not able to provide to provide that care. And you know, I purport that our, our patients can tell when you're doing something in a tasky way versus out of the abundance of the compassion in your heart. I think it's very visible for for our patients. So I think there's a really clear correlation between compassion and burnout. And I haven't done any research, but I would imagine that folks who have jobs that are more task-oriented, that you're working, you know, in isolation, that you're accustomed to that being your workflow, I think it would be easier to deal with versus dealing with people. And we know that working with people has a potential to be laborious. It has a potential to be exhausting because you're taking on all of that emotional energy of that person that you're caring with. You know, if you have somebody who's coming through the emergency department and they're in a significant amount of pain, you know, pain scale of 10 out of 10, that energy, you're feeling that energy. You know, if you have somebody who's coming, you know, into the ICU and they're extremely frightened and overwhelmed, you're feeling that energy. So I think our work requires a higher level of emotional energy and being in that space with other people who have that emotion. And by virtue of the fact that we're humans, we feel that, you know, and it becomes part of the emotion that we're dealing with as well. So I can see very easily how burnout could be the results for healthcare providers. So this is a, a, a question that is not in here. So if you don't want to answer, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I recently went to a lecture by somebody and they talked about compassion fatigue versus em- empathy fatigue. And she was saying something about how compassion energizes. It doesn't cause fatigue. Have you heard that? And and what are your thoughts about it? I have heard that. And I think it's really, I think it's interesting. I do think compassion energizes, but I think it's to a point. It's like any other resource, right? It's not continuous and always flowing. I think it's it there it comes a point when you've exhausted all of your compassion in one place or maybe over a series of places and then you really feel tapped out, you know, and that's the word that I've heard many of the nurses, I'm just I, I'm just tapped out right now. I need a break. I need somebody to watch this patient because this patient is a lot. And I feel like I don't have anything to give to this patient, Uh, which is why I really love that framework, that empathy framework, because it makes perfect sense. And I am using it from um, Brian Pagan. Brian and I, uh, we became friends over Twitter. And I say that tongue in cheek, but he posted it in Twitter and I loved it so much. And I reached out to him like, hey, Brian, can I use this? Because this is amazing. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely use it. But when you look at the framework, I think it makes perfect sense. So the framework has, it has four stages of empathy, which starts with discovery. You go from discovery, so you're noticing that someone needs something, to immersion, you're immersing yourself into the situation, and then a connection is formed. So the, the third phase is connection. But the fourth stage of this empathy framework is detachment. And I do feel like in, in healthcare, in the work that we do as nurturers, as wives, partners, mothers, I feel like many times, and maybe I'll speak personally, that we feel like we have to continue to be connected and to be immersed consistently. When the truth of the matter is, we can't. It's not healthy. It's not sustainable. What we need to do is we need to take a step back and have some compassion flowing to us to fill our cup so that we can be rejuvenated and then go back to it. I think that's a missing piece. Um, And I think that's why you have that compassion fatigue, because we're consistently, again, especially as women in healthcare, my husband's a nurse, and I know that we experience life very differently. Oh, to be a male. Oh, to be a male, but we're going to stay with the with the women now. But we experience it differently. And things that my husband's able to do, I remember we were both staff nurses. 
and my unit would call and say, oh my gosh, Rose, we're dying. I'm like, okay, I'll be right in, you know? And he would give me like the side eye. He's like, you're off. I'm like, I know, but they're dying. You know, his unit would call, we're dying. He wouldn't even answer the phone. He'd be like, no, I'm off, you know? And I think there was a healthy amount of <laughs> detachment that I had to learn over many years that I can't be everything to everyone, right? I have to make sure that I'm okay first and that that I, I have been rejuvenated and I've poured into myself so that I can pour into other people. I think that detachment is the opportunity that we have. And I, I do love that framework. So even though compassion could be invigorating, there's only so much that you can do. I think everyone needs to periodically say, I need a, I need a moment. Yeah, I think discussing that detachment is really interesting. And I, I heard this like a really long time ago. And whether it's it's a fact or not, I'd never really looked into it. It just resonated with me because I am one of these people. But they had talked about how there's there is a very surprisingly large amount of nurses who come from like alcoholic background families. And it's and it's just like natural enabler because that's like a lot of things that can happen when you when you grow up in these types of families is like you you may become an enabler and I am an enabler. And so when I think about how many clinicians out there come from these types of backgrounds that might kind of grown up in these like enabled ish type environments. Mm -hmm. And then when you think about as nurses, I feel like we're just so a lot of times can just be professional enablers. <laughs> and, and so this idea okay. of detachment also I'm just and I and I hope we get into this conversation again. I don't know if this is when we want to pin for tips and tricks or get into it now. But I I would suspect there's a lot of people out there who are like, yeah, how do you detach? Like how, you know, when you come from enabling or you come from that kind of background, maybe you didn't have great boundaries and now all of a sudden you're in a profession where a lot of boundaries get crossed, right? And like, where are the boundaries in a lot of these very personal interactions with patients? And so I think this this idea of detachment, I can see that being a critical piece that, that folks aren't doing, whether they are consciously aware of it. And so I think this is a good conversation. So for folks listening, yeah, what are you doing to detach? And and Rose, maybe you could talk about what, what does that detachment piece look like at a practical level? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I do agree. Many of us have different motivations as to why we went into healthcare. I think the at the crux of it for all of us is we wanted to make a difference. We wanted to save the world in our own way. I'm going to save the world, you know, and the reasons why we want to save the world, of course, differs for all of us. So I definitely get that. And that detachment piece, how do you achieve that? That is a, a tricky one. I remember within our organization, one of the questions that we have in our press gainy in our employee engagement survey is um, for our leaders. I think it's for everyone, but I pay attention to it because I have leaders who report to me. And the question is, I am able to disconnect from work. And throughout the pandemic, our engagement scores in my service line within my, my leadership team remain pretty high. I have an amazing team of leaders that are fully engaged. But that was the one question that was consistently low, and it made sense. We hung around like a 3 to a 3.2 out of 5. And it makes sense. When you consider... There's a lot that I can say here. I, I won't stay on the soapbox too long, but I'll just I'll just tap on it for a minute. When you consider this misnomer that leaders have 24-hour responsibility, I mean, who made that up? You know, and how sustainable is that? 24-hour responsibility, stop it, you know? I think just that in itself, it creates problems for us when you believe that you're always on. And I can take a vacation, but unless I'm out of the country, people are always able to get in touch with me and they're always able to at least send a text. Like, Do you know what's happening on the unit? You, I, you better be glad you're not here. You know, that, that doesn't foster detachment. You know, people, people suck you in. So we had some intentional conversation in my leadership team about detachment. And I am a big proponent of leaders taking time out. I try to get my leaders to take a week off every quarter. Like, 
take off at least three weeks, at least three weeks a year, because your job is incredibly hard. You need a week, you need consecutive, you know, five, seven days off every quarter. So that's number one, intentional and telling them, please take time out, take time out. The second intention is that when you're off, we take you out of several things because we chat by by text, right? We have all these text threads. So if you're off, you're not in the text thread because you're off and the expectation is that you're off. And I had conversations with the leaders to say, please ask your team not to reach out to you when you're off, to really respect you and nurture and support you enough to say, she's off, I'm not gonna say anything to her no matter what, because there's always another leader covering for you. So we need to do that. But it's just that intentionality of, of separating and saying, you know, I need a moment. You know what, guys, I'm going to turn my phone off. I'm going to revel in two hours of no phone, no vibrate, no nothing. Can you support me in that? But just those small steps in ensuring that you're able to detach. We talked a lot about finding things that you love to do and doing those things without any interruption. If it means going for a walk, going for a hike, going for a run, working in your garden, do that without any interaction with your team. It's definitely easier for our staff nurses. Even for them, it's hard because now we have these, what we call text blasts that we send to everyone when, you know, all the patients come in on the bus. It's like, oh, send out a blast. So everybody gets a text. And I, I hate that. And I ask the team, please be intentional. I know it takes a minute, but look at the schedule and look at people who are off on vacation and don't send them a text blast because there are people like me who have big hearts and they get the blast and they're on their vacation, staycation. And they're like, okay, I'll come in. No, we don't want you to come in. But just finding those opportunities to really step away and be detached from your your responsibilities at work really make all the difference. I love that detachment. I was listening to a podcast recently, and I don't think it was it was about clinicians or healthcare industry, but it was just about burnout in general. And they talked about almost like this move in a lot of companies to not only incentivize vacation but to offer, I don't like a consequence if you do email when you're on vacation or, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, Mm -hmm. so I thought that was kind of interesting. Not that I'm like, love, you know, giving people punishments, negative consequences or whatever, but I just thought it was really interesting, like that some companies are moving to this. Not only do we not want you to work when you're on vacation, we're going to prioritize that message so much that we're going to give you a negative consequence if you were. (laughs) Um, And and I think that's well intended, at least. (laughs) I don't. But yeah, yeah. I but it is so important to have that time out. And one of the things I see a lot of nurses sort of kind of give the eye roll to like when we do things at at the hospitals, like Oh, self-care. Let's talk about that word, self-care. It almost seems like that's like a buzzword. And then it's almost like adding to our plate. So now, like, not only do we have to do our normal work, now we have to do yoga or (laughs) mindfulness exercises. Or So can you talk a little bit about, like, self-care and then versus, like, compassion, I guess, for yourself? Yeah, no, absolutely. We have a saying here is that you're not going to yoga your way into well-being. You know, that that's that's not going to happen. And you're right, um, because yoga doesn't, I love yoga, but yoga does not resonate with everyone, right? And we had a really robust conversation, a group of us talking about self-care. And one of my colleagues, who's a millennial, he said, listen, taking a break is not self-care. He's like, that, that's the minimum requirement. You need your break. You know, so don't, don't lower the bar that much that you are thinking that, oh, I got a chance to, to use the bathroom. I remember as a staff nurse coming into shift and somebody said, I haven't used a bathroom in 12 hours. I'm like, yikes, your poor bladder. 
that's that's nothing to be proud of. Don't say that to people, you know. Why not? What was happening? That you could not find time to pee in 12 hours. I can't believe that the whole place was on fire for 12 hours, you know. So I do think that we need to be careful about the whole concept of self-care. When you think about burnout and well-being, well-being is really a holistic a, a holistic look at our wellness. You know, it's not just it's not just one thing. So it's not just your physical health. It's also uh, your mental health, your health in your relationship, relational health, the health in your teamwork. So well-being has to be a holistic approach to us. And it can't just be that, yeah, I'm going to give you some some coupons so you can come to the employee health workout section, the gym that we have on campus so that you can work out. No, that doesn't really matter. Even massages, the big thing that we're doing now is like, oh, everybody gets a free massage. That 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 doesn't matter. We have to look at it in a more holistic fashion, which is why I'm so excited in our organization where I have started a well-being department. That's the only focus. And the goal is that we're going to weave in well-being into everything that we do. It's going to be the lens that we use to make decisions as we're creating staffing matrix. You know, our goal is to one day to have that conversation using my well-being lens, I think the staffing matrix lacks this, or wow, this matrix really supports well-being. I mean, can you imagine? I'm super excited about the future of of integrating well-being into everything that we do, but it has to be something more holistic. It's not just one thing. It's not just your body. One thing I'd like to say, though, as we talk about, I know we're not quite at solutions, but as we talk about wellness and yoga, I think we have an opportunity to normalize counseling and couch time. That's something that should be incentivized, you know, that you have taken time to have a conversation with a professional about how you feel. Because I, we don't do that enough in healthcare. We do not do that. And I really want us to normalize, seek some couch time, have a conversation with someone, be your true authentic self. I think that's the road to recovery for many of us and getting us out of the compassion fatigue that we may be experiencing. Yeah, what folks can't see is that, I love yeah, that. Stephanie and I are just like <laughs> bobbleheads, like, yes, yes, you need therapy. That neutral third party is where it's at, who has no stake in your life. And yes. And, you know, that's what I, I talk about this a lot with different colleagues of nursing or really any healthcare profession, nursing physicians, what you know, we see like globally speaking, really traumatic things mm-hmm. with our and then we may have our own trauma too, on top of that. But particularly I'm gonna speak for nursing because that's what I know. We as a discipline have done nothing to even like help people navigate how to deal with that trauma or mental health even like maybe it's Mm -hmm. not trauma a big trauma but it's we don't you know if we have a patient who dies in childbirth sometimes it's just kind of ignored and a nurse or the clinicians there in that case might have real issues and it's kind of like we just kind of gloss over it or say, oh, sorry about your patient or, you know, it's all well-meaning. But I think there's really nothing at that system level for No, for I agree. I agree. We have, I'll always remember when I first started here five years ago and we had a really significant untoward event and I asked the team to do a debriefing. And a couple of the nurses, so there were like five of us in the room, I, and I invited someone from behavioral health. So everybody was in the room, and we started doing introductions. And then the person from the two people from behavioral health, they said their names and where they were from. And the nurse said, "Wait, you guys are from behavioral health?" I was like, "Oh, I thought you guys were from HR." I was like, "Well, why would we invite HR to a debriefing?" She's like. I thought you wanted to pull us in to tell us all the things that we did wrong. I said, no, I wanted us to debrief because I feel like this was an emotionally charged event and that you need a moment just to talk about 
how you felt, how you showed up, how does it feel now? And the tears started to flow. She's like, I've never had a debriefing before. I'm like, I'm, I'm so sorry. Like that, that, that's the whole purpose. So debriefing is great. It's helpful. But even past debriefing, I think when you have such events that are traumatic, and we get to determine what's traumatic, right? There's no definition. Trauma is what you perceive trauma to be. It's so very important to have counseling and to have couch time and to say, hey, this is what happened and this is how I feel about it and have someone help you navigate through those feelings. Oh, I think this is a lovely conversation and is is resonating on a lot of levels. So you talked about this well-being department at your organization about, you know, using that as a lens to make even systems decisions. And we also talked about like debriefing and and counseling. Is what is there anything else that you can think of what like compassion or even just burnout looks like at the system level in healthcare? I think at the system level, it's about a couple of things. It's about turnover, especially that first year turnover, because that's when people come in and they're like, oh, yeah, this doesn't this doesn't resonate with me. So they leave. So I think it's turnover. I think it's apathy. I think it's poor quality outcomes is another way that it shows up in the organization. You know, if if you look at your metrics and your, your clabsies and your caudies and your ventilator-associated events, all of that is, I, I think those are all signs of it, I think. And also turnover in the leadership ranks. I think that's really telling as well because uh, for the most part, leaders are diehard. I just got a text from someone that I admire that works in a, nationally in this major organization. And she's like, hey, I just wanted to let you know that I'm leaving the organization. I'm like, yikes, why? You know, And we're colleagues and not friends' friends. So it's like, I didn't want to say why, but I'm like, oh, I'm so sad. Unless, of course, this was a good decision for you because the burden of the work was too much. And she's like, yeah the burden of the work was too much and that that's why I'm leaving. So, you know, it's important to to note that also. But I think those are the ways that, that it shows up in a systemic level that we make decisions. I was having a conversation with someone recently and I said, I just feel like sometimes our C-suite, great, amazing, lovely people are not aware of the work that frontline nursing leaders are doing. They're not aware of the challenges that frontline nursing leaders face every day. And because if they were, they would want to decrease the burden um, and put some things in place to ensure that, you know, frontline nurses shouldn't work 50, 60 hours a week. That's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. And there are things that we can do to really, really mitigate that. So I think that's, I think that's how how it shows up in the system, that disconnection, outcomes, and apathy and turnover. So having compassion can seem like a big ask for someone who is feeling burnt out, but what tips or tricks do you have for folks to start exercising compassion towards themselves or towards others? There are lots of things that we can do to start to help facilitate more of the compassion the resilience, the agility, any of those, the words that we choose, because I know words are matter. So I'm trying to make sure I cover all the words. I saw this really great article in 2020, you know, how to build your resilience. And there were some things there that I, that I really love. That's really simple that I want to highlight. One is positive beliefs. If you think about the whole concept of appreciative inquiry, uh, one of the tenets of appreciative inquiry is the words we use creates our reality. The words we use creates our reality. What are the words that we're using? You know, if you come to work and you're saying, oh my gosh, it's a hot mess of garbage. It's going to be a hot mess of garbage, right? Because the words you use create your reality. So I think positive beliefs and positive words of affirmation. Some people might think it's cheesy, but it's not. There's science behind, you know, the words that you use and how it impacts your moods and your thoughts and and that if you say it, your brain believes it, right? So I think that's a great one. A strong social network is great. Not everybody's privy to a strong social network, but that's helpful. Being optimistic, another one on the list, which is my favorite, is laughter. I love to laugh. I feel very fortunate and blessed to 
have the family that I have because my husband and my daughters, we all love to laugh and they're all super funny. So the dining room table is like the best thing ever. And we know that, you know, laughter increases endorphins. We know that if you laugh for, I think it's like 40 seconds, it's like doing 20 crunches. I don't want to do any crunches. I don't want to do any planks if I don't have to. But I'm, I'm down for a good belly laugh that's hurting my stomach and tears rolling down my face. Uh, so I think laughter is a great thing. But the one that I really want to talk about, um, I got this from Harvard Business Review 2021, The Benefits of Gratitude and Happiness. We did the 30-day gratitude challenge within my leadership team. I got everybody a journal. I said, listen, for 30 days, you're going to write every day three things that you're grateful for, and it can't be the same thing. So I got the journal for everyone, and of course, we had to do it at my house. So at bedtime, I would say to my husband, I am a natural optimist. He is a natural pessimist. He'll say that he's a realist. He's not. He's a pessimist. But I love him with all my heart. So at bedtime, I would say, okay, okay, JD, what are three things that you're happy and thankful for? And at first, he'd say, you and the girls. And I'm like, you can't say the same thing every day. But what we know from from research is just by doing 30 days of gratitude journal, that it changes the neural pathways of your brain. It changes who you are. And some of the benefits from the article is better sleep, improved physical health, enhanced sympathy, reducing aggression. I'm, I'm all about that. Self-esteem improves your mental stre- st- strength. It enhances productivity all by focusing on gratitude. So I feel like that's low-hanging fruit that we all could do. Hey, what are three things that I'm super grateful for? And it really fosters that self-reflection, gives you a minute to be introspective, to say, what am I thankful for? Wow, a lot of really great things happened today. A lot of great things happened. And that just really changes our focus and it changes our mindset. And the last thing that I'll say is to live in the moment. When we're looking towards the future, the place where we have no control, right? It causes stress and anxiety. But when we live in the moment, when we're present in the moment, we find a lot more satisfaction, a lot more sense of self and belonging. So I think that's the last one that I would say, live in the moment. I may have a other one, which I think kind of goes with live in the moment, but, and there's no research behind what I'm going to (laughs) say other than my anecdotal, but I had to unplug from media, social media, the news, the newspaper, podcast about the news, whatever, because I finally was like, is this serving me being informed? Yeah. And really realizing like, that's, that's one perspective the news and the perspective really is ultimately not to necessarily inform you but is to get you to tune in and kind of be a be a audience for them so they can Mm -hmm. consumer right so you Mm -hmm. they can get ad revenue and so Mm -hmm. anything sensational it doesn't matter the the news Mm -hmm. necessarily but that has at least for me has worked tremendously (laughs) But I love those. I love those ideas. And the things that you said aren't big tasks that you have to do, like an hour yoga class, or even a 10 minute mindfulness exercise, like writing three things that you're grateful for, or telling someone three things that you're grateful for, you know, might take a minute. Well, and Stephanie, I think didn't, was it you or April recently sent there was a Twitter thread Okay, Stephanie, then, <laughs> yeah. um, this made me think about, too, so I appreciate you brought up gratitude. Uh-huh. It was, like, called gratitude tennis or something like that. And so the point of this oh, gratitude that. tennis was that you set a timer for three minutes with another person, and you go back and forth, volley, right, play tennis, saying what you appreciate about the other person. Because, of course, there's a lot of great science, right, that you had talked about, Rose, that supports the, the superpower of gratitude. But also there's really powerful benefits to hearing that you are appreciated or what people appreciate about you. And I think, you know, especially in the, the line that we are in, because we give so much, it is very infrequent that we receive. And I think that 
when when I was reading this again, this Twitter thread, I was like, this is a wonderful exercise because yeah, how often do do we get to hear like, hey, Stephanie, I really appreciate that you do this mm-hmm. and and the power of that. And so and these mm-hmm. he acknowledges that I know this sounds corny. He's like, but set a timer. It's three minutes, you know, <laughs> and you can't repeat the same thing. You've got to say something new and mm-hmm. and to see what happens with that. And and I could absolutely see where that would be really, really powerful exercise. I think us as as nurses, as women, that we have a hard time taking that positive feedback or so like when we have a patient say thank you for blah 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 you're like oh that's just my job like you know and so we're we're constantly sort of trained so to speak we minimize and deflect socialized yeah minimize and display it's not about us so i think that that really does make a lot of sense like not only is it really good to give gratitude but also to receive that gratitude and not have that opportunity to dismiss it or minimize it. Right. And just embrace it. Somebody say I was part of a COVID vaccine clinic. I said, guys, let's bring it to the people. So they're like, okay, Rose, you bring it to the people. So we had a COVID vaccine clinic in the woman's tower, you know, so it was all my people. I'm like, and I sent an email. I'm like, I'm going to be giving out vaccine injections because I knew there would be some vaccine hesitancy. And it's so funny. Folks would consistently say, that's the best injection that I got. I'm like, I know, right? It's my superpower. Don't tell anyone. But I totally embraced it. You know, it's like, yes, this is this is what I do well. This is what I do well. And the word got out. Rose gives really great injections. And I totally embraced it because I have heard that a lot in my career of all the random things. I'm like, it's my superpower. I give I give good injections, yes. <laughs> Can I just say that I think I don't know if I said this when you did our respectful maternity care episode, but I was like at least thinking like can I have a baby again have Rose be my nurse and now I'm like can I go work in L&D and Rose can be my boss just move to Atlanta and be part of this like well-being matrix thing I know sounds incredible you just seem like oh I, like you're just giving everybody a hug yes. <laughs> thank you thank I know you. it is my superpower it is. <laughs> yeah, when you were when you had talked about in our last recording about how you like introduce yourself to people. Again, you know, right. I gave birth mm-hmm. almost 8 months ago, so not that long ago. It's still very fresh in my mind. And I'm like, "Wow. Like so how different that would be." Right. And oh, right. <laughs> it's incredible. Yeah, and so easy. It's so easy to do, you know, just to be centered with your patient for less than four minutes telling them what you're committed to and that decreases so much anxiety all right well we will keep trucking along here since we're at an hour so what is one thing that you want all our listeners to know about burnout and compassion I think the one thing that I would say goes back to that whole concept of living in the moment. This is our current reality, but it's not our forever. We have the power to completely reimagine healthcare now. That's the opportunity that we have to reimagine it. And it's not always going to look like this. So I say that all of the time. The first time I said that in one of my resiliency presentation, <laughs> I had someone send me a, a screenshot. She's like, I created a sign because I love it. This is our now. This is not our forever. I'm like, yay, yes. This is our now. It's not our forever. So burnout does not have to be our forever. We have some tips and tricks to really mitigate it and to get us towards the path of well-being, towards the path of wholeness. This might be a hard right turn into the weeds, but you had mentioned, you know, talking about how we're really in this space now where we can start to reimagine healthcare. And I know some, I've heard some criticisms of, you know, all this resilience 
research is because it's like the criticism is, is we say, well, you need to be more resilient. How do we make individuals more resilient? But the flip side of that is, well, why do we have to be resilient? Like what systems or what things are happening that are causing the need for folks to have to be resilient? And I was like, well, that's interesting, right? Because again, I agree that there is Mm -hmm. this like fostering resilience and looking at that, but then kind of that flip the table of well why why all this resilience need necessary or what kind of trauma Mm -hmm. systems are we navigating and why can't the systems change and so i'm curious and again i know this was a hard right turn into the weeds but when we think about reimagining healthcare what this could look forward like how do we how do we build in or change that with this mind of resilience so that you know, maybe the onus isn't all on us, but the the system takes that and reduces and owns that. I absolutely agree. I don't think it should be solely our responsibility. I do think that the work that we do is potentially and likely <laughs> traumatizing. It's hard work. We shouldn't mince words. It's hard work. And I think Anyone who's been through healthcare will have suffered trauma. So by virtue of the work that we do, but you're right, it's not just our responsibility. I love organizations that have moved to, my daughter works for an organization that has unlimited PTO. Like, what, what is that? Tell me, tell me what that is like, you know? And I love the thought behind it is that you get to determine how much time you need off. And when you need the time, you just take the time. And I think that's so great. So I think there are a lot of system changes that we can put in place that would decrease the burden for us so that there wouldn't be a need for resilience. Like going to work, and I remember as a new grad nurse, you you guys probably remember also, because I was hired in labor and delivery, which was my dream job. So what did I have to be sad about? I remember going to work every day, super excited, super happy. You know, and with every patient and family that I was able to be with and be part of their birth, that just filled me up even more. So there was that, there was a reciprocal relationship of give and take, you know, so that I would give and I would get as well, right? And I think that our systems now are more we give and the system takes, you know? So there are things that we can do to change things up and focus on well-being is, is one of them. I think focus on our schedules. We can be very creative. Let's reimagine flexible schedules. The pandemic forced us to do a lot more telemedicine, like mental health. That's something that we didn't think we could do so effectively via telemedicine. But what else can we do via telemedicine that we haven't done? We need to have that kind of group think to say, okay, white canvas, how are we going to create it? And then allow us, and I think the us as nurses, to really reimagine it. And then those who have the ability to write the big checks to say, because I value nurses and you guys are closest to the patients, which is why we're here. We're going to write a check, whatever you say, we're going to do. So to answer your question, yes, by virtue of the work that we do, it is traumatizing and we do need our resilience. And yes, organizations have a responsibility to decrease the burden so that so that you have a give and a get, not just a give and we take. Well, and I think, you know, that feeling valued is really critical because I was reviewing the presentation that you had sent and there was a chart in there that had kind of these color-coded blocks. Mm-hmm. One of them was, and I can't remember the, correct me here, fill in the blanks for me, but it mm-hmm. was something to the effect of, you know, things that employers didn't think was as important versus what they thought was important. And I think what happens is a lot of executive folks think it's all about the money. Like they just want more money. And Stephanie, she had recommended this book, Humankind, amazing book. And the the author of that book talks about that it's not just about money. And like somehow we got this idea that everyone thinks you can motivate folks just through money. But really the big piece is valued. People want to feel valued. And I remember looking at that chart and one of the big things in there mm-hmm. that 
that folks weren't paying attention to is that it's very important for people to feel valued. And so I think, you know, when we imagine how do we build in resilience in this at a systems level is in what way are we making our the our staff feel valued? And pizza parties aren't cutting it. Okay, like just stop with the pizza parties, please. And but right. And so I think I appreciate that you bring right. up value and that and I think maybe we are at a point with this new generation, you know, when you think about unlimited PTO, you know, it's not about the money, but wow, could you imagine from a value perspective, like here I have someone who's trusting me to like make this decision on what I need and like how valued your daughter, I assume, would feel, mm-hmm. you know, in that mm-hmm. type of position and, and what does that communicate? Mm-hmm. How does that communicate value? And and so I think mm-hmm. that, yeah, how are we building in value that giving mm-hmm. it back? Yeah, no, I agree. Thank you for calling that out. And I think it's it's super important because so many times, you know, nurses will say, well, if you give me more money, if you give me more money and I share in, information like this, and this is, we did this during the pandemic, you know, this, this study was during the pandemic from McKinsey, the McKinsey report. And this hasn't changed. I remember getting this book. I was a nurse recruiter for one beautiful year in my life, and then then it went away. But in that one beautiful year, I remember getting this book called One Thousand and One Ways to uh, Reward Employees. And like one of the first paragraphs said, "It's not about money." And I learned that it's it's never about money. It's about creating that sense of belonging. You know, you belong here. So when you come in, you know, that all that cheesy going to the bar, what's the bar where everybody knows your name, but something like that, you know, but value by the manager and having that sense of belonging and also having teammates that they can trust and have relationships with. Those are the top three things that people want. Money is very low in it. But I think when we feel disengaged and when we've been disappointed and we can't get what's really important to us and we defer to the other measurable thing, which is money. Then it becomes about money. But at the crux of it, it's like, I, I and I, we had that conversation just this morning in our huddle, in our leadership huddle, because we talked about the, the pay. And I said, you know what? We're in a very tough financial period right now. All hospitals and healthcare organizations are going through it. I said, but what we do have control over is our culture and creating a place where people feel like they belong so let's work in the area where we have control and, you know, let's, let's do that for our employees that the word gets out. You know what? That uh, Emory Hospital in the suburbs of Decatur, uh, their pay is not the best, but geez, oh man, they're nice people. I love when I get to work there. I love working with them because in this day of, of incivility <laughs> and, and hard work, that's saying a lot, <laughs> a whole lot. It is. And I agree. I think people will trade like, fine, if I'm going to have to come here and be treated like garbage, then you're going to pay me for it. And exactly. that kind of becomes the surrogate for if you're not going to value me, then pay me more. And and I agree with you, Rose, that mm-hmm. I would rather get paid less, but be in a phenomenal work culture and feel valued than get paid a lot and hate my life. Totally. <laughs> Totally. Well, I don't know who in healthcare goes into this profession thinking, I'm going to make a lot of money. <laughs> like, that's not why we chose this. Otherwise, we right. might be a investment banker or, <laughs> or <Right>? something else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because even if physicians make or surgeons make more money, that's not why they go into that line of work. <laughs> Not at all. And then when you think about another thing that I talk about, not just burnout, but I also talk about the level and the rates of suicide, you know, it's a real thing. It's a real thing in healthcare when you talked about surgeons, because they're really high up there with a suicide rate. It's like, to Nicole's point, I don't want a lot of money and I will hate my life and think about, you know, jumping from a building. Give me the minimum. Let me be filled with joy and gratitude because that's something else that we don't talk about enough in healthcare, the rate of suicide that happens for us. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I thought of that earlier and forgot to bring it back up. Well, I think let's task our listeners that you have to play one game of gratitude tennis <laughs> with someone at it. work and someone at home. And we can all try and fill our buckets a little bit. 
But Rose, you have given us so many wonderful tips and tricks. Where can folks go to learn more about managing burnout and compassion? Or do you have some resources you love? Yeah. So in the references, there'll be a lot of really, really great articles that came out during the pandemic about some simple things and some really great science. And also the American Nurses Association have the Healthy Nurse, Healthy Nation. They right now are doing this whole thing on burnout. So if you're a member of ANA, there's a survey that's live now. And also there's some resources on Healthy Nurse, Healthy Nation that is live right now. And I think you can get up to like 20 plus CEs if you participate in some of the education. So I think that's a really, a really great one. I love Brene Brown. She has a lot of podcasts that are available. I love all the talks about vulnerability because I think in essence, that's, that's us, what we need to hear more about and to learn more about. And then just, just be intentional about what is it that fills your bucket? You know, when you feel the most satisfied, what have you done and how can you be intentional in doing more of that and carving out time in your calendar to to do more of what makes you feel like your best self because you deserve to feel like your best self. I wanted to make a quick plug too. I forgot to mention this earlier for our listeners. We do have an entire episode on humor with Karen Buxman. She is a neurohumorist and... Yeah, you have some, I guess Forrest has some thoughts on humor too. But yeah, she talks about how you can find humor, you know, even if you're not a funny person and it's not about being a comedian, but just kind of finding those bright Mm -hmm. spots. And she nerds out on some of the the neuroscience behind that, like mirror neurons and all that. I do not ask me what episode number it is, as I cannot remember. Um, But yes, it's it's, uh, humor with Karen Buxman. So feel free to check that one out too for our listeners. Okay. So Rose, I would personally like to thank you so much for your time and commitment to advancing sexual and reproductive health care through communication. Do you have any last thoughts that you would like to add before we end? What I want everyone to remember is that the power of nursing is our collective voice and our ability to reimagine the future. So we may not love healthcare right now, this is this is a moment in time. Let's reimagine something greater we can together. Thank you so much, Rose. Yes, thank you, Rose. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. Mm-hmm.